Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio this week, Rania Kalik, who is an independent Middle East-based journalist. Rania, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks, David. It's so great to be on with you again. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Great to have you uh, back in this country. Uh, you've been you've been in the Middle East for quite a while. Where have you been, and when did you get back? Uh, for about a year, I've been in the base in the Middle East um, and a little bit in Europe, but uh, basically Beirut, Syria, and Iraq. Um, and I've done some reporting from there. Uh, and I just got back to the U.S. a few weeks, a couple weeks ago, just visiting some family. And I haven't been back in about a year. Um, and i got to say, the political climate here is intense uh, in a way like I, 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 that doesn't really uh, come off when you're outside of the country in terms of just the anti-Russia hysteria. Also, when I came here, I landed, um, I was actually in the air as the alleged chemical weapons attack took place in Syria. And so when I got here, it was just constant warmongering. Everywhere I turn in D.C., so it's been quite an experience being back. Yeah, that's interesting. No, we we may be in that you know pot that they're heating so slowly we don't notice. Um, but if you're gone for a year, <laughs> you notice it. Really, you don't you don't see the the Russophobia and the uh, the Russia Gate and the warmongering in Washington when you're when you're abroad. You 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 have to be here to see that. Um, it's not that you have to be here. I mean, I see it. I see it in reading the news. I see it in watching, um, you know, CNN International. But even that's not as bad as what you get domestically in this country. Uh, and also, it's also just the political climate in D.C., the atmosphere. It's just not the same abroad. Um, even in Europe, I spent, uh, I spent a little bit of time in Europe. And, you know, obviously there's some anti-Russia sentiment there. But it's just there's it's nothing really parallels what you see in the U.S. right now, the hysteria. Uh, in the U.S. is just so extreme and so suffocating um, that it, it's not, I mean, I, w- I would say even in the U.K. it's not the same. Um, and also, just, you know, certainly not in the Middle East at all. So it's just really surprising being back here and just seeing how crazy it's gotten. I mean, people that I'm friends with who, I, who are otherwise pretty smart people also play into this stuff um, and, and believe it. And so it's just it's really intense. And then also... Uh, when I got back, I, like I said, the chemical weapons attack that was alleged to um, take place in Syria happened. And so I was just, you know, everywhere you go in D.C., CNN is on in, like, every restaurant, <laughs> um, yeah. even, like, a hotel elevator. It was being uh, aired. And so it was just everywhere I looked, it was constant calling for bombing Syria and calling for, like, retaliation to, you know, an escalation against Russia. And I was just really shocked by how, by just, by just how... Um, how deluged people are with these sentiments. So what do, what do people in the United States think and believe about Syria that's different from how people in Syria and other parts of the world uh, see things? Well, in the U.S., I mean, there's just no... You, just, you only get one view, and that's it. Like, you just get the view of the sort of U.S. State Department-approved view of Syria that is just very black and white. Syrian government is evil <laughs> um, and just, you know, and, and, and massacring uh, civilians across Syria and, like, eating babies for fun. Um, and that's the only view you get. In the Middle East, of course, it's far more nuanced. I mean, some people in the Middle East do think that, but also 
there are people on the other side of that debate, and then also people who understand what's happening, which is that the U.S. spent the last several years uh, in in, um, in uh, collaboration with its allies in the region, arming and funding a collection of Salafi jihadist groups across Syria that prolonged the civil war that's taken place in that country. And, in fact, you know, one thing that's really apparent um, to me when I come here is just how distorted the image of, of a country like Syria is. Also, this goes for, the, for Iraq as well, as it's portrayed in the U.S. press as though it's like this apocalyptic hellscape, when in fact the war is kind of winding down. And um, in a lot of areas of Syria, it's returned to you know, stability and people are kind of going back to their normal lives because the war is coming to an end, largely because the U.S. and its allies stopped funding and arming the groups I mentioned before. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I, I mean, you come here and it's just, it doesn't, like, the, the image you get of Syria doesn't make any sense. It's actually the more distorted and convoluted than the, the coverage of Israel-Palestine. But that sounds like good news, even if it's good news we don't hear much about, the U.S. Uh, stopping funding uh, a bunch of war makers, a bunch of terrorists in Syria, pushing toward uh, the overthrow of another government, uh, abandoning that uh, disastrous, immoral, illegal, counterproductive uh, approach to Syria sounds like a very good thing. It absolutely, absolutely is, but it's, um, you know, in this country, in the U.S., the media kind of had a meltdown uh, when Donald Trump announced that there, the U.S. would end its covert weapons program, which actually already started to end under Obama before he left office. Um, but the U.S. media also had a meltdown when Donald Trump suggested that the U.S. pull out of Syria. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's just the, the, again, the coverage you get here makes no sense. It's very convoluted and very distorted, and it's a good thing. In Syria, the best thing that's happening right now is the de-escalation of violence that's taking place, and reconciliation agreements in areas across the country that were formerly under insurgent control, areas that I've actually visited. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's allowed people, I mean, people in this country don't understand what war is. They don't understand what it means and how it really destroys people's lives. They don't understand what it means to collapse a state. Even though we did it in Iraq and we saw the results of that were disastrous, um, in Syria the U.S. did collapse the state in large parts of that country, and in the areas that were collapsed, these insurgent groups, these, like you mentioned, I mean, criminal gangs really took over, and it was absolute chaos, and it was a horror show. Um, and so people are happy that it's, it's you know, moving towards less violence. That's, that should actually be the end goal, to be less violence, the escalating violence, and allowing Syria to, like, to, to recover from this trauma that we've inflicted on, on that country for all these years. And yet Donald Trump pretty quickly reversed, at least in his rhetoric, and bowed before the power of the media or the Pentagon or somebody and said, no, 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 we're not going to get out of Syria with U.S. troops until we, uh, we, we leave a strong and lasting footprint or something, which God knows what that is. Uh, if nothing done thus far has been strong or lasting, uh, I shudder to think what would be. But uh, it, it seems that uh, he's pretty easily reversed. Well, because, I mean, none of his um, ideas are really based in substance. At the end of the day, I don't think Donald Trump really cares one way or another what takes place, he's also being influenced by an, a, a war cabinet that he's built around him um, that obviously, like, wants to stay in Syria indefinitely. I mean, that would, that would have happened if Obama was still in power. That's U.S. policy in the region. I don't think you're going to see the U.S. pulling out of Syria, no matter what Donald Trump says, because at the end of the day, 
the foreign policy establishment, the Pentagon, the war makers, if you will, want leverage and control in Syria and leverage in the region. But the fact of the matter is that in Syria, the U.S. lost. Um, and they're having a really difficult time, I think, dealing with that. The U.S. lost in Syria. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean Syria won, but the U.S. designed for Syria, which was regime overthrow, didn't work. Um, they, they, they lost because Syria, unlike Libya, unlike Iraq, had allies that stuck by it, including Iran and, most importantly, Russia. That's probably Russia's involvement in Syria is probably the biggest deterrent to the U.S. getting its way in that country. Um, and so I think, like, I think a lot of the confusing rhetoric and, like, lack of really coherent policy ideas around Syria have a lot to do with the fact that the U.S. isn't used to being in this position of losing. It's it's funny that you put it that way, because despite the fact that the United States successfully overthrew governments in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, Libya and elsewhere, I, I never thought of them as victories uh, or successes, uh, given what catastrophic, drawn-out disasters they produced. Uh, and, you know, we haven't seen a, a victory parade in, in Washington, D.C. since the Gulf War. Uh, I, I know Trump is going to hold one in November anyway, but uh, I, I, guess, I guess Syria is somehow a different level of loss. Uh, in the, Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I should think after, after decades uh, without, you know, anything they really called a success or a victory, they ought to be getting used to it. Well, you know, actually, David, I think that U.S. designs in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya, um, I think the goal is chaos and destabilization. Like, I think in a sense that is a victory because it's basically, it, it basically makes it impossible for these countries to function independently ever. Um, and also it makes them countries that are in perpetual war. I mean, it keeps the pockets of uh, weapons makers uh, you know, full of money <laughs> indefinitely. Yeah. Um, so in a way, chaos and destabilization, even though Iraq didn't turn out the way like neocon said it would, where it was going to be some flourishing democracy, in a way, creating the chaos and destabilization in Iraq was successful in some way um, for the U.S., although, of course, it had uh, other consequences that, you know, kind of erupted in, in America's face. But either way, I mean, I think destabilization and chaos is the goal. Yeah, and and that that goal in Syria, that sort of permanent war without uh, any resolution in Syria, seems aided by the incredible divisiveness of the topic. Uh, I mean, it, it, I've never seen anything divide uh, the so-called peace movement or the general public in this way, so that someone like myself who just opposes war, uh, the minute I say one word, against the government of Syria or the government of Russia. I'm a U.S. imperialist who loves Donald Trump or Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, and the minute I say one word against U.S. military actions in Syria, well, now I'm an Assad-loving defender of the angelic government of Syria. And Vladimir <laughs> like, you can't, you can't say one word against one side uh, because it's, it's all or nothing. It's well, I think this is deliberate. I think this is deliberate. I mean, this was a deliberate, these are deliberate efforts to fracture the anti-war left, which is, I think, weaker than it's been in my lifetime. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's an extreme thing to say, but uh, it does. I don't see it anywhere. I mean, I see very small groups of people who vocally oppose war, but at the same time, Syria has been an incredibly divisive issue. Um, I think a part of that is because people don't really know what the U.S. did in Syria. 
Uh, I mean, yes, the Syrian government is there, you know, is, is bad in many ways, very, very flawed. Um, and a lot of things about the Syrian government absolutely need to change. There's no question about that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people aren't really aware, and I blame the media for that to a large degree, aren't aware that the U.S. played a major role in destabilizing that country and, and prolonging this war. Um, and if they knew that, I think they'd be like, if they knew that the U.S. funded death squads in Syria, which is basically what happened all these years, uh, I think that you'd have more momentum against that. But instead, what you have is a media apparatus that portrays Syria as some conflict that's been so terrible, where, again, like I said earlier, the government, you know, it's just the government bad, the rebellion is great um, and good, and that uh, the U.S. just kind of stood on the sidelines and did nothing all this time uh, and stayed neutral and, like, should have done something. But that's, like, I mean, the, 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 that's, like, couldn't be further from the truth. The U.S. spent over, uh, the U.S. spent at least a billion dollars a year funding and arming this insurgency in Syria uh, with its regional allies. I mean, it's the best funded insurgency in history. <laughs> and people don't know that. Moreover, I think one of the most scandalous aspects of what the U.S. did in Syria was that it armed and funded groups that worked alongside Salafi, like worked alongside al-Qaeda and ISIS, openly worked alongside al-Qaeda and ISIS under the banner of the FSA. Um, I mean, this is a huge scandal. The, the group that, that, that is... That, you know, that it claims responsibility for 9-11 has grown to have its largest affiliate in northern Syria ever, tens of thousands of people. I'm talking about al-Qaeda. Because of U.S. policy, arming and funding, basically arming and funding them in Syria. I mean, it's so outrageous. But people don't know that. And instead, you have all this moral posturing and virtue signaling, you know, about, you know, if you're against uh, intervention in Syria, you know, Western imperialism in Syria, you're, you know, the first thing you get called is an Assadist, as, as though you just, like, have posters of him hanging in your bedroom. Right. What do you what do you make and what do people in Syria and in the region make uh, of so much attention to accusations of chemical weapons use uh, after years of numerous parties, including uh, al-Qaeda and related groups, Killing all kinds of people with all kinds of weaponry. Is there the same? Oh. Is there the same focus on the chemical weapons accusation uh, in Syria that there is in Washington? No, uh, no, because and not just in Syria, but I would say more generally in the Middle East. I mean, look, we've had there's been plenty of wars in the Middle East, and people have died more so by conventional weapons. So this weird focus, like this weird obsessive, unique focus on chemical weapons, doesn't really make sense to people. Because um, all kinds of weapons have been used, in, in the, in the, specifically in the war in Syria. So, um, and, you know, chemical weapons don't even... I'm not saying they're great, but they don't... Compared to conventional weapons, they don't kill as many people. They don't actually do as much damage. So it's a confusing... Um, it's a confusing idea to a lot of people. It's like, why is there this weird focus on this one weapon when, the, like, it's like there's all these other weapons being used? Beyond that, I mean, in, in government areas of Syria, where the vast majority of people live, People don't believe there's been chemical weapons attacks. Um, they think it's like a big U.S. For the most part, people think it's a big, you know, Western conspiracy to try and overthrow the government. Um, and even, I mean, again, like uh, even people who are living in government areas who maybe oppose the government, many of those kinds of people exist, are also very skeptical of Western narratives about Syria, and they largely blame the West for the conflict in their country. Um, on top of that, I mean, the timing is just remarkable. It's whenever the Syrian government is on the verge of defeating uh, insurgents in, in whatever area of Syria, you oftentimes get these these accusations of chemical weapons attacks or all kinds of attacks 
to try and provoke Western intervention because that's all that can save the insurgents is they need outside intervention to save them. Um, and so the Syrian government doesn't benefit from using chemical weapons. I mean, the Syrian government's a lot of things, but they're not stupid. Um, and it would make no sense to cross this, like, red line uh, that they've been told repeatedly by Western governments exist uh, for no tactical benefit whatsoever when they're about to defeat insurgents. So, yeah, people are really skeptical of this narrative. It just, I mean, a lot of people are. But in the U.S., to just question um, the State Department narrative gets you branded like some sort of conspiracy theorist wearing a tinfoil hat, which I find really uh, disturbing. But there's, you're not allowed to question or be critical of anything, apparently. We're speaking with Rania Kalik, who is an independent journalist based in the Middle East. Uh, Rania, I thought the way that you determined the facts of such questions was to see what color helmets people are wearing. Uh, who are, who are, because if they're wearing white helmets, then it's true, right? And what do you? What do you? What's your analysis of the of the white helmets? I mean, the white helmets are by. I mean, they. they RAPR front group. I mean, there's no question about this. They have been funded to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars by Western governments, including the U.S. State Department, as well as the U.K. Foreign Office, um, to push to push for a no-fly zone in Syria. That is their reason for existing. And they're oftentimes embedded with the insurgent groups that control the areas they operate in, which are exclusively insurgent health, which oftentimes are al-Qaeda or its clones. Um, so it's just, I mean, it's so obvious. Uh, but again, to, to question this at all or to say this, again, gets you branded as though you're some, like, lunatic, um, which I find really stunning. And, the, you know, the footage that's put out by the White Helmet uh, has a huge impact for a reason, because it's, it's being pushed by this massive PR group called the Syria Campaign. Um, and it has such influence that any time the White Helmet puts out video, it ends up being re-aired on every major media outlet in America, and oftentimes it has swayed Donald Trump to bomb Syria. So we have to be critical, and, like, we have to look at these things with a critical eye. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think there should be anything controversial. That's a fact that I just stated, is that the White Helmet is funded to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars by the U.S. and the U.K. Foreign Office for the purposes of pushing for intervention, Western intervention in Syria. That's a fact. Yeah. Uh they they seem to be doing a much better job at the moment than Israeli propaganda. If we can if we can turn to the subject of Palestine, I mean, I, I don't know that it makes any difference in U.S. policy uh, as the U.S. keeps giving billions of dollars of free weapons to the Israeli military every year. Uh, but we're seeing sharpshooters murdering uh, men, women, and children uh, engaged in nonviolent protests. What's What's going on in, in Gaza? Well, what's happening in Gaza is you have the Israeli army behaving um, basically like with no uh, restraint whatsoever. It's almost as though they're kind of testing the waters to see what they can get away with. Um, and I think under the Trump administration, what they've realized is they can get away with just about anything. Uh, so they're shooting. I mean, they're picking off and mowing down protesters uh, from sniper rifles uh, in the Gaza Strip. Um and they're doing it on video. And, I, I mean, I, I, what's, what's stunning is how you don't hear the same, you know, uh, howls for the West to do something about Palestine when we're watching it happen before our eyes. Um, and it's because a government that's friendly with the U.S. is the one that's doing it. Um, and it really does, I mean, it just really demonstrates the complete hypocrisy of American policy in the region, where, you know, 
one one government is a dictatorship that must be overthrown um, because of its violence, whereas another government is our friend and its violence is totally excused um, and even justified in the case of Palestine. And it seems like over the decades when Palestinians have engaged in small, relatively small levels of violence, uh, they've been universally condemned, uh, and perhaps rightly so, but here you have them committing to massive nonviolence and putting their lives at risk nonviolently, uh, opposing violence, and you have sharpshooters murdering them. And I, I don't see the same level of, uh, of, of uproar in their defense uh, when they're doing what, uh, what everyone presumably thought they ought to be doing. I mean, you actually have had Thomas Freeman um, write a column before basically saying that Palestinians should just go get shot by the Israeli army on video protesting on violently, and it'll just change everything in the West. Well, they're doing that now. Yeah. They've done it before, but they're doing that again now, and it's changed absolutely nothing. And I don't know where... Like, Thomas Friedman hasn't, as far as I can tell, written a column about the Palestinian nonviolence protests in Gaza. So, I, it really, I mean, it is really stunning to watch. And what's also really stunning is the same people... And a lot of the same people who are basically, even when Palestinians demonstrate nonviolently, they're still branded as rioters who are somehow deserving of a violent response um, for provoking the Israelis by just existing, I guess. Um, but the same people who, who have that view of Palestinians where they're constantly calling for Palestinians to be nonviolent are, are oftentimes very, very supportive of the Al-Qaeda-allied groups in Syria, um, just like shelling Damascus relentlessly with Saudi and Qatari and U.S.-supplied arms. Um, so it's kind of, it just kind of demonstrates some more of, like, this hypocrisy. It's, like, nothing I've ever seen. Well, I, I mean, I take seriously the arguments that nonviolent movements are more likely to succeed and that they are not guaranteed to succeed and that they are very difficult. So I, I, I sort of do encourage the Palestinians in what they're doing, but is it... Is it beginning to make any progress, you know, outside of the U.S. media, which ought to be, you know, probably the last place that they that they win ground? Are, I mean, are are these weekly protests having any impact in the in the Middle East? You know, what's really sad, and I, maybe I'm going to sound a little cynical when I say this, is that the conflicts that have raged across the Middle East for the last twenty or so years, uh, beginning with the um, invasion of Iraq have really fragmented uh, the Middle East. I mean, people still are supportive of the, of the idea of, you know, Palestine versus Israel, but it doesn't resonate as much anymore across the region, I don't think. And a lot of that has to do with the sectarianism that's been fueled by U.S. policy in the region where people see themselves, you know, as uh, Sunnis or Shias or Christians first before anything else. Um, or uh, So that's a part of it, but also there's just other conflicts happening in the region, especially with Syria, uh, that has kind of distracted from what's taking place in Palestine. So while people do still have some semblance of solidarity with Palestine, uh, it's not really high up on the agenda. And that's unfortunate. That's probably the biggest victory uh, for U.S. and Israeli and Saudi policy in the region uh, the last couple of decades is to be able to fracture um, the you know be able to fracture the base of support for for the liberation of Palestine in the region. Um, as for Palestine, I mean, I think that in terms of, like, Europe and the U.S., I think public opinion is certainly changing, um, especially among in the U.S., among liberals, among Democrats. Specifically, uh, you have 
far more support for Palestinians than in the past and a decreasing level of support for Israel. Um, and that's because, again, like you mentioned earlier, Israeli PR isn't as good as it used to be. Um, and also Israel's becoming more and more right-wing. It's becoming, it's moving more and more towards the far right, the government is. Um, and, it's, uh, it, and it's becoming a place that Americans, it's more and more difficult for, like, American liberals to sympathize with uh, this right-wing, this, like, really just gross um, kind of vile right-wing rhetoric you hear from Israeli officials. And so I think that the public opinion is certainly changing. Um, I don't know that government policy is going to change anytime soon, but I don't think Israel can last in the way it exists right now. I mean, something is definitely going to change at some point. Um, it's like it's just going to happen with time. We we've just got a few minutes left. What uh, it's a lot of negative and a lot and some positive trends <laughs> there. What 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 should we be encouraging? Is BDS efforts have any value? What what would people in the Middle East say to people in in the United States and in Washington D.C.? What would they want us to be trying to work on uh, in restraining our government and improving that region of the world if we can? The, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I think most importantly, the U.S. needs to get out of the Middle East. Um, U.S. involvement in the Middle East, Western involvement in the Middle East, has been a catastrophe for the region, and it continues to be. Uh, and, the, and the U.S. needs to get out. And that should be, at the very least, that's something that people in the peace movement and the anti-war left in the U.S. should be able to agree on. Whether, you know, you think the governments in the region are terrible or whether you like them, doesn't really matter. What's most important is that the U.S. needs to get out of the region. Um, that's what's going to help the Middle East. And, you know, BDS is, of course, a big part of that. Um, and that, what comes with that is the U.S. side, not just divesting from Israel, but the U.S. needs to end its, you know, billions of dollars in military support for the Israeli government. Same goes for the U.S. support for Saudi Arabia uh, and the Gulf monarchies in the region. Um, this, is the, this is one of the biggest problems holding the region back, is U.S. involvement and support for reactionary governments in the region, and that needs to end. You would think the left could agree on that, but every time I turn on democracy now, some new guest is telling me that the United States needs to overthrow the Assad government. That's that's the I left. Mean, I, and this is on the right, and this is on the War and Peace Report of all things. I mean, look, I'm somebody who I my politics were shaped by democracy now in many ways. I was introduced to a lot of um, left thinkers and intellectuals and journalists. Watching, I was actually, I think I saw you, David. Um, it's been a while. My politics starts, it's been a while, yeah, but I mean, you're somebody who I, probably, I think I probably learned about who you were watching Democracy Now! at one point. So it had a big influence on me, sort of uh, when I was younger and, and, you know, choosing to become a journalist. But now so it's been really, really difficult for me to watch um, the sort of fall of the war and peace report, where it just seems like a parade of war hawks. Um, oftentimes, Syrian exiles calling for the destruction of their own country from afar, um, and no other voices. They seem to they really dominate the voices that you hear on democracy now when it comes to Syria. And the same can be said for some other issues as well, unfortunately. So, I mean, I, I guess the best thing I can say is, I mean, I think I just made a really good case for something we can all agree on. And you know, if you don't, if if you're in support of Western intervention and imperial, if you're in support of the U.S. and if you're imperialism in, in the Middle East. For whatever reason, then I don't think you can really call yourself um, somebody who's in the peace in the peace movement or somebody who's on the left, um, because that is really the antithesis of everything it means to be um, anti-imperialist and on the left. Regardless, again, of what you think of the local politics of the region, that doesn't mean you have to love 
the Syrian government, no more than it meant that you had to love the Saddam Hussein government in Iraq to oppose U.S. invading that country. Very good point to end on. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Rania Kalik is an independent journalist based in the Middle East, headed back to the Middle East now. Thank you very much, Rania, for taking the time to come on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.